Listeners should be aware, there may be spoilers. I'm going to build something bigger, faster, wilder. I want to kill the opposition. Cut their throats. We are pirates! Welcome to Editors on Editing, the podcast in collaboration with American Cinema Editors and Pro Video Coalition. I'm Glenn Garland. Over the last four seasons, the powerful drama Succession has captured the zeitgeist and mesmerized the nation. The final fourth season is brilliantly edited by three amazing editors. Ken Aluto, who won an Eddie and was nominated for two primetime Emmys for Succession. Ken also edited American Experience, for which he was nominated for primetime Emmy. Oz, 30 Rock, for which he was nominated for three Eddie Awards, winning one and nominated for five primetime Emmys, winning one. Unbreakable Kimmy Smith and Modern Love. Bill Henry, who won a primetime Emmy for Succession and has also edited Smash, Alpha House, Dickinson, and The Gilded Age. And Jane Rizzo, who was nominated for both an Eddie and primetime Emmy for Succession and also edited Z for Zachariah, Red Oaks, Leave No Trace, Dickinson, and the hunt. Jane, Ken, Bill, it's just such a pleasure to have you. I just love Succession. It's amazing. I think that the editing is superlative, and I'm really thrilled to talk to you guys about it today. Nice to do. Me too. Thanks for having us. So, Ken and Jane, I know that you both came on in season one, and Bill, I believe that you joined in season two. Can you tell me about how you became a part of the show? For me, it was a call from my agent talking about the show Succession. So I went to meet Mark Malloyd at the studio where they were prepping. And uh, we got along really nicely. He was very easy to talk to and, you know, just talked about the show, talked about how much we loved it, the style of it, the music, the acting and everything, the writing and everything about it. Really hit it off. I had a quick talk with Jesse, who was in London. I had two interviews like within two days and then I got offered for both of them. Fortunately, I chose Succession. I'm not going to mention the other show <laughs> because it only lasted a season. But uh, yeah, it was great. It's been a really great run. I've been on all four seasons. And I came on to do the second and third episode after the pilot. Mark and I are both very concerned with keeping the style of the show. So I would constantly go back and watch the pilot. I had never really known Jane. I knew Bill a little bit, but we all became really great, great friends and worked together really well. So it turned out to be a good, good run yeah. for all of us. Yeah. Great. And I have a very similar to Ken's experience. My agent was kind of like, oh, there's a show you should go meet. I think it's good people. And also I met with Mark, who I initially thought Mark was like the main person and not Jesse, because my interview was fairly long with Mark. But it was Labor Day weekend, which was the U.S. Open usually happens in (laughs) New York. And I'm a huge tennis fan, and we mostly talked about tennis, and that's how we kind of bonded. And then I had a very short conversation with Jesse, who, again, I kind of was like, all right. I wasn't quite aware at that point that he was the actual showrunner. I remember I was I was working on a movie, and the director liked to be in the room with me all the time. And I, so I was kind of like, I have to do this 10-minute call. And I was like walking <laughs> on the street, and it was like trafficy. Like, he couldn't even hear me. I just thought it was like, I'd done my main interview with Mark, but anyway, Jesse was just very wonderful from the get-go. Mm. And I've worked on three out of the four seasons. Mm. And Bill? 
Well, I came in because Young Jane had a <laughs> film when season two was starting off and we were working together at the same time on a show called Dickinson for Apple. And she said, oh, you know, I can't go back. And I think you'd be really into this show and with these people. And so she put me in touch with Dara Schnapper, who then booked me a meeting with Mark and Jesse, who mostly spoke amongst themselves and asked me a few questions. But like <laughs> these guys, it was, it was very informal. It was almost like, oh, well, if, you know, Jane liked you. Yeah, come on. Yeah, we'd lo love to have. I mean, it, I think I heard within like, 24 hours but also like at the end of season one it still wasn't i feel like season two is kind of like where it was the turning point and becoming this cultural phenomenon you know like it aired and people kind of liked it but for me as a viewer i remember jane telling me about the show and i remember trying to watch the show i started like episode one and I was like, oh, man, this is a tough haul. People are so hard to do. They're just despicable and awful. And then I heard that I had the meeting and I was like, well, I guess now's the time. I, I got to watch this. So I just banged through it. I remember like around the like Thanksgiving dinner and there I was starting to get hooked. But then it was really episode six when Ken tries to take over at the stockholder meeting that I was like, oh, God, this thing is game on. And then the rest of it just was amazing. And I, Yeah, you really get swept in. Yeah. How do you collaborate? And do you collaborate? And are you in the office? And how does that all work out? It's great being in the office because, you know, we all hang out in each other's rooms and look at things together sometimes and just talk about stuff and complain about stuff as well. Some may call it pestering. <laughs> Sometimes you're yeah, not pest well. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you cannot <laughs> cancer when he's busy, but. <laughs> well, particularly if, particularly if somebody else is in there. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. And how has the editorial process evolved over these four seasons? And what's Jesse Armstrong's process in the cutting room? From my point of view, I guess because I had a little bit of a sharper contrast because I did season two, but then I went away and did uh, another HBO show during season three and then came back for season four. Which, which you regressed, by the way. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, the actual process of cutting the sequences and the episodes was more or less the same from season to season. But I think what started happening was because they started cross-boarding more and Jesse seemed to be spending a lot more time, almost all of his time on set, that we didn't really have access to him until they wrapped shooting. And so that was really the trickiest thing because, of course, then the time was so collapsed by the time they wrapped because they didn't finish shooting until, was it February they finished episode 10 this season? Uh, later than that, I think, but... <laughs> Episode one aired in March 26. So, you know, uh, right. they were really chasing us with the air dates as we were still working on open episodes. And there were a lot of open episodes for a good portion of the time. Mm. The one comment I would say is in terms of editing process, yes, it was a more compact schedule, but I feel like each of our individual editing process didn't change. I do think what happened by season three and four is though all of the cast and the crew were like so much more secure in what this show was in terms of their characters and stuff. Mm. Kieran really knew who Roman was. And I think that that was something that just in general, like the cast was just much more, not that they were never not comfortable with who their character, but I think you really feel like 
everyone's keyed in and who their characters. They sat very comfortably within their characters. By yes, that. Bill I, is much more eloquent, but yeah, that was. <laughs> <laughs> I was say also in season one. I mean, the style had, I don't think changed that much, but I remember in season one getting a lot of questions from executive producers sometimes, like, "Is it the right balance of humor and drama?" And I think after season one, it didn't get those inquiries. I think it kind of found its balance, you know, so. And then, of course, the viewership started going up in season two. And then I think they were like, oh, well, this path I think, is- we, I, think we got, I think we got it. <laughs> right. We got this. And it just felt like everybody was more in sync with what the show mm. was across all departments. Yeah, I mean, tonally, you do go from- drama to comedy to satire you go to a lot of different places how are you calibrating that and is that a concern or do you just follow what the script is dictating and the actors or yeah i think it's really mostly in the writing and the, and the performances basically tell you what it, what it is i would agree and i would say the writing is very funny but, but um at least my experience i don't know if bill and ken had similar like there were moments that I felt could have even been funnier and Jesse would basically be like, let's rein it in. He would always be aware of not wanting to go into slapstick. Mm -hmm. Like I had this one scene and it's in the election episode, the season where Tom and Greg are snorting cocaine behind the board. And then I used to cut to the outside where there was like a wide shot of the board and they're looking out. It's a funny shot. And, Jesse's very, like, in terms of at least my experience with showrunners, he doesn't give a ton of notes. But that was one of the rare picture notes where he was just like, yeah, if we cut to the wide shot, it's too, like, slapsticky. Let's not cut to the wide shot. The comedy is definitely in the writing, but I think there's also a level where, you know, like, you would never cut to the joke. So you always try to play it straight and play it as real as possible. Yeah. There was a whole sequence in the Norway episode that was lifted out. And it was the one episode that Jesse really sort of reworked and reworked during the course of the editing process, mostly because there were these set pieces that felt a little bit contrived. Like there was the two factions, the the Swedish faction and the U.S. faction, and they were pitted against each other in these games of strength and will, like river mm. crossings. Oh, really? They had... Yeah, exactly. Where they actually showed them do all that stuff. And they had these like vests on and it, it did feel a little officey and a little contrived and forced in a way that Jesse just doesn't respond to. I always feel like his humor has always got to be rooted within the writing and moving the story forward and keeping those characters as real as possible. And mm. any moment that feels the least bit disingenuous or a little winky winky in terms of humor I feel like it just really sends his hackles up. And he very politely, always politely, <laughs> he lets all the departments, I feel like, really go out there and try and experiment with things, both on the set and with the actors, and also all the way down through us and cutting. But in the end, he is the captain that will take it all in and then say, all right, no, we got to steer the ship a little bit back to this course. He's just sort of amazing at the way he can key in on the most minute things in terms of what he's seeing on the screen. And, and that is what then sets us apart, I think, in terms of that ability to jump between drama and humor. Mm. 
Yeah, another thing about Jesse is that probably one of the only showrunners in a series that I've known that if he has time, he'll watch the editor's cut and compare that because sometimes the stuff gets cut out and he'll like something better in the editor's cut versus feature cuts and stuff like that. So it's interesting to go to that extent. It also played into the fact that the editor's cuts were generally the one place where you could go and see the entire script. Right, which was seriously really, really long, usually. Yeah, <laughs> they're anywhere from an hour and 25 to up to two hours, which was Ken's oh, wow. cut on the, the, the finale. The, yeah, the first, the first cut of the finale was two hours this season. That was the longest, yeah. Wow, and where is it getting cut down? Is it getting cut down in the director's cut? It's a mix of, you know, the directors make cuts, Mark makes his cuts that he wants to try to do. We would suggest cuts sometimes. The executive producers send Jesse's notes and he'll weigh in on those. And sometimes scene cuts cut, and a lot of times it's not so much scene cuts, it's just tightening and losing bits here and there. It takes a while to get down from an hour and 40 to like 65 minutes or something like that. But yeah, there's a lot of give and take too. Sometimes you cut stuff out, then you put it back, you take cutting it out again. I mean, there's a fair amount of challenges in cutting the show, one of them being the amount of footage, but the other one is you get these 85-page scripts, and most of everyone's first pass is like at least 125, 130, and it's kind of like a bummer to have to cut out full-on storylines, but that's definitely happened to me, and I'm sure Ken and Bill. Oh, yeah. But that's probably also why each episode seems really wonderfully tight, and it moves at a really great brisk pace and it's probably because you have more material than you can fit in an episode so you're really compressing it getting it down and getting to the essence yeah get everyone to talk on top of each other (laughs) (laughs) the other thing i'd add to the overall process of that whittling down is often because they are very overwritten is not the word i like to say but you know they are long there are often these story points or story seeds within the episodes that get planted. And in the course of cutting the whole season, there are definitely spots where there's a story point that we need to take time out of this earlier episode, but this is a story point that we may want to play with in a later episode. So I feel like he often writes in such a way that there are a lot of repeated story points that he can decide after the fact where he wants to slot them in between the three of us as we're putting together the season. Don't need it in episode three. It should be in episode five. Or, you know, an example I would say in episode three, there was this fantastic, very short scene between Tom and Shiv after she comes off the plane and they wind up in a car together. And there was this scene where they had this exchange and he basically puts his hand out and she takes it and she's <laughs> then immediately eviscerates him by saying, oh, you know which side of the bread your bread is buttered. And so it's just very mean and horrible and Tom's, you know, shift in power now because Logan is dead. But then later, and I don't know how it happens, whether they saw that scene. And even though we lifted all the dialogue out and I only used the drive-by portion and a montage at the end, but there's that fantastic scene in 10 that Ken has between the two of them with that now indelible image of Shiv and Tom in the back of the car. That was a exact same framing. Mm. and beat of that that I had in episode three. And that's just another example where I think when they overwrite and overshoot these things, that it creates these new ideas for them that they then find other great spots that mm. give it more weight. Interesting. There was some, yeah, also some things uh, during the season, because she was pregnant when I was cutting episode uh, four after Logan dies, that scene where she we mentioned that she's pregnant was shot later. 
and we ended up reworking a bunch of episodes. Bill had some, everyone had to do some cuts around, like Shiv not drinking. It was really interesting because that scene at the beginning where she, you find out she's pregnant, but she's not telling anybody. The episode was already done prior to that. And she has these looks between her and Tom, which really just resonate the fact that she's pregnant and no one knows about it. But, the, you know, the looks were already already there, which was amazing. Happy accidents along the way. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, it really worked well. So. <laughs> What's well, like the beauty of editing, right? All of a sudden you realize that you put something, right? <laughs> And then it forces you to get rid of first snorting cocaine in an episode. So. <laughs> <laughs> I remember getting that draft and I was reading on the subway and I was just like, oh shit, shit is pregnant. <laughs> and I think that what had happened was Sarah was indeed pregnant and they kind of reverse engineered it from there That's right. and added the scene in four. And then poor Bill had to do his house <laughs> of cutting all the booze and the drugs. Tell me about calibrating characters that sometimes you love and sometimes you hate. Like you really love Rome and then he does something despicable and Kendall and Shiv and Logan, they're constantly playing with your emotions as far as getting pulled into really caring about them and then they do something terrible. Tell me about working that and having these characters that are so gray and varied and interesting. A lot of it, again, like everything, it all stems from the writing and these incredible performances. They bring this humanity to these people, Kieran and Jeremy and and Sarah, that even though on the heels of doing some really horrible thing to one character, they're then presented in this situation where they have to be either empathetic or they're going through this, you know, emotional crisis. I mean, I always think of that amazing scene in in your episode, Ken, when Ken comes to Shiv in the office late at night and has that very raw emotional breakdown with her about his mindset when he was trying to get off this drug situation he was in and the killing of the kid. It's like Roman, for example, in 403, after Logan has given him his marching orders to go and hatchet Jerry, there's this incredible shot that was just sitting on his face after he had already given her the axe, where you can just read in Karen's performance his conflict in that, yes, he's done this thing, he's angry at his father, but at the same time, he knows that what he's done to this person that he does actually have feelings for is really tearing him up yeah and you can read it so readily and they're just masters at being able to do that i I, you know all three of them and i i always really care for logan but again i I mean echoing bill it like goes back to the acting and the writing but also i think because by season three and four you've spent so much time with these characters well family is very dysfunctional and these characters you can relate to because they're so real and they are broken and we can all relate to broken people. So, Which I think is why Jesse was always, at least in my episodes, I don't know how Bill and Ken feel, but he was always very keen on making sure we kept any kind of reference, even if it was just a passing line, but any kind of reference that was about their upbringing and like their childhood so that mm. you would get more of a sense of their like backstory. Even like the chicken and steak scene in the election episode, it was like such a small detail, but it's enough to just give you a sense of, yes, they had every kind of privilege, but they had zero, you know, like true affection. 
Sarah brings it up in the eulogy and that I loved that reference where she talks about the kids playing outside of his office at home to mm. get his attention and how he'd come out and start shouting at them. That's the thing, I think, when you can sort of track in these adult faces the trauma that's happened because of their relationship with their father and their parents from the beginning. They have been completely fucked over on a personal level with their upbringing. And so in a lot of ways, yeah, you can feel sorry for Logan, but I mean, they did reap what they sowed in terms of these kids. And even with Logan, like when Ewan gives his eulogy and talks about how their sister died and you get a little bit of insight to Logan and at that party in episode one, he really wants the kids to be there. He did what he did because he had to win, but you could tell that he doesn't want to be around all these people. He wants to be with his kids and how he reacts outside the club when the kids decide that they're not going to listen to him and take the deal. He starts getting angry at the world. So you just see there's a reason behind what they do. Yes. It's all in past trauma. <laughs> I find that the show's really unpredictable and that's in the writing too, but editorially, is that something that you guys are working with Jesse on as far as keeping the audience guessing and cutting out different scenes and things like that? Yeah, I think it's mostly part of the writing and the storytelling. Yeah, I didn't. I have to say, I agree on that one. I felt like it was all sort of built in. Yeah. It's a show where it's the closest to the script in terms of structure. Like, you're rarely moving the order of scenes or anything like that. Like, I feel like I do that all the time in features, but the show, yeah. it's like you're basically just cutting down to the script, but you're never moving or rearranging stuff. Mostly, you, know, you see it in the season finales of every season, where there's a surprise that you're not expecting. The first season with Kendall after the kid drowning and then Logan turning the tables on him. Same thing with season two and season three. You find out that Tom's the one that turns the tables on the kids and stuff like that. The writing is just so smart, really cleverly put together. Talk about the punch zooms. That seems like something that was in the very first pilot episode. Yeah, it was in the from the beginning. You know, I think sometimes we can use a little, little less of it. That's one of the... I think it's the tricky things of editing the show is basically every take is different. So basically you're looking for the best performances, which is, they're all amazing. So that's pretty easy. And then the right camera movement at the same time. So yeah, basically for us, we find, you know, every take is different. They're shooting a lot of footage, mostly two cameras, sometimes more, but the camera's moving all the time. So you're looking for the best performances, the best camera movements and trying to get that all together. Occasionally, there are some scenes that turn out to be too static where the camera's not moving a lot, and those can be very problematic, <laughs> but there aren't very many. The style of the show is basically the handheld camera, the movement. And that was kind of set in the pilot from the get-go, this kind of like fly right. in the wall, and then it became this dance between the actors. And then I think another kind of important visual element is the fact that they shoot it on film as opposed to digital. Hmm. And it does give it a grainier, like... I don't know, to me, it does feel different than many of the other shows you watch on TV. Like, mm -hmm. it just has a different texture, yeah. I mean, I've definitely had episodes where there's no zooms. <laughs> like, I, I remember, I think it was episode eight of season one, and we had to manually add some. Mm -hmm. There's something about the moving camera that is a little more forgiving in terms of cutting. 
Oh God, yeah. Like the movement just yeah. kind of like allows you to be rougher mm-hmm. and like hide a cut more easily. Mm-hmm. And also have it so the dialogue's not always on camera, have it off camera because you do a lot of that. So Our camera operators from season to season were unbelievable. I mean, they really are the masters. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I heard a story, uh, I can't remember who cut the episode, Greg and Tom were throwing bottles in the panic room. <laughs> and I think that Tom or Greg were talking to the camera operators before they were going to do a take saying, you know, look, I'm going to do this here then. And the camera operators was like, no, I don't want to know exactly what you're going to do. <laughs> I don't want to anticipate what you're going to do. And mm. that's all part of the idea that the camera almost is catching the actions maybe slightly late in a way. And that, I think, gives it that sort of vitality. The snap zooms, of course, give punctuation to reactions at times. But it's really that flow of the camera that these guys deliver us is the the magic sauce, I think. And that, as Jane says, it gives us all this latitude to make cuts that I think on sticks is almost impossible. I went off to do one show and everything was more or less on sticks. And I was like, oh, my God, this is so hard. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then to come back to succession, I was like, oh, phew, you know, it's, it offers a whole host of other challenges. But the one yeah. thing that it does give you is a forgiveness from cut to cut because people's eyes are unable to sort of grab <laughs> the things that may otherwise grab you if the camera was static. Yeah. And it is such a performance driven show. So I'm sure that it allows you to grab the very best pieces of performance. Fisher Stevens apparently asked Pat Capone one day, he was new to the show, and he says, when are you guys going to go in for coverage? And Pat was like, well, we're getting the coverage. We're going to go back and do the wides later. So if you're going to bring it, you need to bring it now. Everybody in the cast has got to be on at all times. There's no sitting back and waiting for your line to come because you don't know if the camera's going to be on you or not. Mm. And that's why they're all on their game all the time. So it could just whip to them and that whip pan might not be planned. It's just the camera operator has a feeling like, okay, I want to go here. And so they might be on the screen at any given time. Yeah, exactly. They're amazing because, you know, sometimes you'd get like seeing this seven or 10 pages of dialogue and they've got it down pat. You know, it's like, I don't know how they do it. It's just like incredible. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. It was incredible. Wow. And I love that word that you use, Bill, which is vitality. There's such a energy to the show. And I think that the camera operators and that movement really gives it that energy. The dialogue readings are so snappy, but also the camera is very snappy. Yeah. And so keeps it very, very alive. Tell me a little bit about the music. I think the music is another character. And I love the classical feel of the music against this very raw corporate dog-eat-dog world. And there's some very emotional sequences at the end of these episodes with that music. You have these montages where you're checking in with each of the different characters and where they are at emotionally. I mean, the score is wonderful. What's been wonderful is also having access from basically season one. Nick and Jesse had already developed the theme By the time we started cutting, it was almost like a year after they shot the pilot. So we had access to a lot of the cues. And I think music so many times has to do so much heavy lifting. And it's really great when you walk into a show and already have a sense of what the tone of the music is going to 
be. Mm-hmm. I think all three of us and the other editors that worked through the seasons just had a pretty good sense of where the music should be. I just felt it was such a luxury to have the kind of like scope of what the score was going to be from the get-go. It's so beautiful. And I do think it does a lot of heavy lifting, you know, like you just cut to candle on the beach and have beautiful music and you're like, you're emotionally good to go. (laughs) You're good. You're like, you don't have to do anything else. It's like, let it go. Yeah. Yeah. No, the music's incredible. Yeah. He's also a very, um, generous i feel like with his sketches and whatnot i mean even from season to season as he was generating new ideas he would often share sketches that he was working on as jane said just to have access to this library of score was just such a gift because that's always the hardest thing is trying to find musically what fits this particular Mm -hmm. story or tv series that you're doing and you're right it, it, it is character unto itself it speaks to the roy's it's a very elevated, rarefied, classical palette that he mm-hmm. generally uses, that he also then infuses this percussive element that gives it that modern, powerful, American business titan thing that drives it in a whole other way in terms of the storytelling. Like a cue that I found for the end of 403 was something that was a very simple piano sonata that he had written for a prior season, and it just... It just hit every emotional beat that you could mm. hope for in there. I feel like season four, he really did bring this whole other level of score to the show. It had a very, I don't know, it almost reminded me of Nidoroda a little bit in some of the instrumentation that he was using. You know, like they would say, like, you should never cut with music. It's really, you should be getting picture right. And then you put music. But sometimes it helps to have music to, like, just give you the kind of, like, rhythm right. and feel of where you're going. Right you know, helps me sometimes in terms of cutting, knowing roughly what the music is going to be. I also felt like we were all very much on the same page, Nick, Jesse, everybody, in terms of the amount of music that was used. I never carpeted the shows with music. We didn't need it in that No, way. the performances don't require... Yeah. The performances, right. the scenes, it just carried on its own. And so anything that you laid under it often felt like you could be leading us emotionally in ways that weren't good. Sure. I would say some of the hardest scenes to cut are where you have multiple characters in a room talking and you guys constantly have that. And it's so brilliantly cut together. Tell me about the complexity of those scenes and really making those dialogue scenes sing. I mean, I feel like we keep going back to like the writing and the acting is always just so wonderful, but I don't think we've given enough props to like the directors Mm -hmm. getting great performances. We get a lot of footage and we just have a lot of options in the edit room. I'll never forget my first episode on Succession was the gala of season one and then the Thanksgiving and they were cross-boarding those. So I feel like there was a period of like, I want to say it was a month that was just drowning in footage. <laughs> the Thanksgiving is like, whatever, there's 14, 15 people. I want to say they shot it over two or three days. And I remember like being terrified of just like, I don't even know how to start because you're just overwhelmed. And at some point I'm just like trusting my instinct is like, I'm just going to start because the beginning and the end of the scene is going to be the trickiest. We have access to all of the actors' labs. You're like adding dialogue from other takes and just, 
I always feel like it's the closest thing it comes to working on an Altman movie in terms of like dialogue is going on everywhere and you're just like catching glimpses and all that. Yeah. We all sort of have our own. I mean, Ken has a very distinct way of having all of his lines cut back to back. Jane and I do more of a locator thing as we go through. We'll put locators on performances we like or reactions that we like or a particular camera sweep that feels particularly good. For one, I can't multicam watch something. I have to watch every take, every camera on Mm. its own from take to take because there's always something in there. It's like we've spoken about many times before because the camera's always moving, so you're not always in the same place at the same time from take to take. So every take is its own beast, and so there's always jewelry in there to be mined out. The big thing is really all the watching, all the viewing, and then Mm -hmm. once you've done that, I think Jane's right. You just have to jump in and it's all gut instinct. And you're like, I have to establish the room, the geography, who's where, whose alliances are with who at this particular point in the story, who's going to stab who five minutes into this dinner scene (laughs) and planting those looks before we get to their actual Judas moment or whatever it is it's going to be. That is Upper West Side right there. (laughs) I think it is, yes. And then once you've sort of got it all plotted out, I always feel like the fun part is when you get to dive in there and open things up to create more sort of tension or you're tightening things up to make things more speedy and doing all those dialogue steals from other takes and all that stuff that you do to make a smooth play. Hmm. But then once they come together, you're like, did I do that? How did that (laughs) (laughs) I watched years later, I'm like, what the hell made me think to do that? But, oh, aren't you clever? I don't know. It's just happened in the moment mm-hmm. for me, I feel. Yeah, I was remember cutting the last scene from season three with where they all go and confront Logan and try to you know stand up to him. Mm. And that was shot over two days and there was like a ton of footage. But, you know, it's just a matter of, like, who do you want to be on? Do you want to be on the three shot? Do you want to be on the signs? Do you want to be moving? What's the best takes? What's the best performances? And sometimes the blocking would change. Like, Jeremy would be sitting in a couple of takes, but he'd be standing in other <laughs> takes. And, you know, who do you, do you want to be on? Because there is, like, Jerry in the background. You often you need to see her. Then I, I also like to do a rough, you know, rough kind of scene and put it away for a few days and go back and look at it from the first perspective. And I find that really useful. Yeah. Do you do that a lot, Jane? I don't know. I feel like... What I do is I will screen and take notes. And then I actually don't look at my notebook while I'm cutting the scene. And then I cut the scene and then I kind of look at my notes kind of like, oh, (laughs) do these match? And why did I write down this take but ended up Mm. using this other one? And again, I always feel like a really good exercise is to go back to dailies after you cut the scene and especially after you spend some time away from it because all of a sudden you may be like oh well shift should be funnier or something. you know whatever it is but just well you also have more information yeah. at that exactly, point you, yeah. you understand yeah. the scene better yeah so now you can make more informed decisions now right. that you understand exactly where you're going yeah and do you use script sync when you cut i don't nor do i no. well i don't do script sync but i have the assistance similar to what Bill does. I have the assistant put locators on line reads so I can quickly go to the line read. Mm, mm-hmm. And there's this fantastic function when you do those locators that you can actually do a search so that it will bring up all of the line reads from the entire scene 
within the bin and then I can just go through and listen to each of those and see what I have on the on the multiple cameras at any given point for that long. And that helps me find well, Ken just found out. <laughs> I, 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 I didn't know that either. <laughs> How does that work, Bill? You can do a find in the lo- for locators. And so if all the locators have the same line written, you can just bring up every single time that line is said. I see. You have your assistant put in the name uh, of the right. right. Of course, it gets problematic if you're looking for somebody saying the word no at a specific time because it'll bring everything up from the whole I see. Thing. But that's why we have wonderful assistants that can we help do. <laughs> Amazing <laughs> assistants. But that method won't play them back to back automatically, right? You have to click click on them. No, no, exactly. I do have to click through it. Exactly. I can't do a comparison. If I have a director who's like, oh well, I really want to hear these line reads back to back, then I do have to have them do a string out specifically for that. But fortunately, these guys generally, Mark and Jesse, are very trusting people. And that was a rare occasion where they would be like, I want to get a reading of this particular line. Yeah, I mean, I feel like Jesse can be very specific about certain details. But then I feel like on one level, this is a show where I feel like I've had the most freedom as an editor in terms of like, there are big sections of scenes that just won't change. He will say, oh, I thought that something happened here, but there's big sections that just don't change from the editor's cut, really. That's great. I feel like we do have a lot of freedom. A lot of trust. Mm-hmm. More than any other show I've worked on. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure, definitely. Yeah. That's cool. He's exceptionally helpful, I feel like. He really does see it you know, with a fresh eye from a different perspective that maybe we get caught up in sort of the mechanics of what we're trying to do in terms of just the actual editing of it. And then he looks at it with this very fresh astute line. And a lot of uh, the few times that he's questioned, he'll, it'll be like a memory of something that happened on set that he'll want to try and eke that out. Mm. There was a very long uh, dialogue scene in the Norway episode between Kieran and Jeremy up on the hill when they decide to tank the deal and it's at night and it's raining and all this stuff is going on. And it, you know, it was a little, it was tricky to cut and I did basically cut it more or less like a normal scene, but he saw the scene and he was like, Oh, you know, I have this memory of one of these takes where it was in profile and it played just so beautifully and unfolded very naturally with that note. I went back and found what I believed was the right one. And he was right. It was a, just a very like lovely way to sit with the two boys, do the rack focuses, not overcomplicate the sequence. And then I started cutting in as the dialogue started to become more pointed. And that's part of his gift, I think. And Kieran talks about it too in all of his interviews. He talks about, I don't think I'll ever be on a show where they're not policing me for every time I hit a mark. And yes, it may drive the three of us completely bonkers. <laughs> <laughs> The first three takes in a scene, he's sitting down and then the rest of them, he's wandering around the room. You know, he regularly comments on how he never felt so free to sort of experiment the way he wanted to without any judgment or any sort of parameters laid up. Hmm. And I think that just carried all the way through to us in post. But it's also the trust. I mean, yes, obviously, sometimes he'll be like, I think that was maybe a better take, but He's never saying, oh, let's go back to dailies and look at a bunch of stuff. He's just kind of like trusts us enough that we feel like we know what he likes and what are good performances. And so, I don't know. I feel like there's times when it's like, 
60, 70% of the cut doesn't change. You're cutting it down, but in terms of like the internal structure of a scene, yes, he just is so much more confident of what he wants. And I think we all kind of know what he likes. And it may be also he has an encyclopedic memory of what happens on set because he's there all the time. I felt like Mark was the same way in terms of his cuts as well. Right. He would try, you know, taking stuff out, but he was not somebody who really was looking under every rock. I worked with a director on another series. It was like, literally, I would go through every, like it was a feature. And look at every single yeah, thing. Yeah, every, every single thing single that he would start having me know. So I turned into a button pusher and I'll tell you that's why. <laughs> Screaming back to succession. <laughs> yeah, Mark really knows what he has. And, you know, occasionally he'll ask for something that he shot that he remembers that he really wants to use. But he's also very easygoing. He'll send notes for the first pass and stuff like that. But he's usually pretty happy with our cuts and stuff like that, for the most part. Yeah, the executive producers this season, too, it was like they, you know. We, oh, my God. <laughs> we would get so late in the game. Or they would send them on to Jesse and they would somehow get folded in there. I remember in season two, that was a difference that I definitely felt like Jesse was much more open to sort of letting us try all the notes that were coming in from all the various EPs. And then he would say, oh, well, who had us try that? And who wanted to do this? And that went away, certainly for me in season four, where I felt like Jesse may annotate them and say, oh, well, this sounds like an idea. Try this or try this. But often, like he was just reading them and then folding his agreements or disagreements into his past. Mm. And can you share some insights into an episode you cut the season? Who wants to go first? Episode three. Oh, Jane. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Going to order. It's a huge episode. It's amazing. All right. I'll try and make it as pithy as possible not to bore my cohorts. But the crux of it, obviously, was the phone call to the plane. And I initially cut the entire sequence as a scene without any of stuff on the plane because they hadn't shot any of that. So that mm. was sort of my way of creating a clothesline because there was no real indication in the script from Jesse about how much of the time we were going to spend on the plane or on, on the boat. And then when I got the plane footage, I started intercutting that into the best of my ability to sort of balance it between the two locations favoring the kids, certainly, as they were having the biggest emotional play at it. But there was certainly more in the earlier cuts of them on the plane and the stress of what was going on up there. Because there was a lot more of the EMTs of the stewardesses working on Logan and all of that. But when Jesse finally saw it, the major note in it was about the balance of where we were and how long we were on the plane or we were on the boat and how much of that time was spent on the kids' faces and whatnot. He wanted to try making it all about being with the kids, and there was a lot less on the plane. And that became too much, so then we came to a happy medium in there, with it mostly on the kids. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I just love about that is we're really in the kids' heads, because we're seeing very little of Logan we hardly see him at all. And even with the chest compressions, we're not seeing his face until I think almost to the end. Yeah. The la the only yeah. saw we have of his head, which was the foreshortened shot from behind his head when Shiv was on the call talking to him. And you really feel like you're in their heads because they're getting so little information. Is he dead? Is he alive? Is he breathing? Is he not? And it was really effective having as little as you guys did on the plane. I just thought that was 
wonderfully yeah. put together. And also the distance. That was another note that Jesse had that I thought was very astute, that he wanted us to be further away. Because of Tom's positioning next to the body, there was a bit more where I was closer to Tom a little bit earlier on the mm. phone. And then Jesse suggested that whenever we're seeing into the cabin where Logan's body was, that we were not on top of them. We were sort of further back. So we were always a bit removed. And it only was when we got with Shiv on the call, which brought Tom and Shiv together, obviously, that we spent a little more time closer to the body and Tom. Yeah. And then the other thing was this fantastic thing, which they also did in episode nine that Mark managed, which was they got the camera department to do this loading process where they did a single, what was called a single take for 27 minutes from the point they come up the stairs and get the call all the way to the point where they bring Connor up to the captain's quarters and they have that big fight where Roman is shouting at Shiv that they don't know for sure that he's dead and why are you saying these horrible things mm. not dead. And the beauty of that shot, although it was wildly complicated and I had already structured pretty much the whole thing when I got that shot, they really had the scene down for the whole stretch and they really wanted to be able to do this one long run, which mm. was great. And it, there were some things in the front of it that were of value and were good. But the real payoff was as they went through it, they got more and more steam going, particularly Kieran. And when he got upstairs with Shiv in that scene in the captain's quarters, he was on fire. And that tape is a very big part of that last scene. Yeah. The performances are incredible. Yeah, they're amazing. They're amazing. Yeah, Shiv mm -hmm. just breaks my heart in that whole episode. Yeah. And the conceit of it, Jesse's idea not to have this death scene that was in our face, that it really impacts you in a way that feels very real. It's unexpected. Death is unexpected. Yeah, felt very honest and real. So anyway, there you go. Who's next? <laughs> All right, so I'll go with eight. The election night from basically season one, Jesse's always been very much wanting to shoot any of the monitors practically. So they basically shot for several days at the NBC studios in Jersey, and they had full-on days of an actual election night with newscasters. Mm. That whole thing where they're on the floor down below and going through all the cubicles. Yeah, but, and... but even more that was being played back on the monitors. And it was partly helping the actors to actually have something to respond to mm. and partly to really give it the sense of the excitement and like all that's going on during the election night and trying to make it feel as realistic as possible. And that was kind of the challenge of the episode that so many times I was tied to certain things that were being played back and having to build the whole soundscape around it and just in general, making sure that you got the progression over the course of the night and to give it that sense of excitement, it's overlapping everyone's dialogue. Like even mm. in those fight scenes, they often just keep the camera rolling. Like the scenes in that conference room were all shot together. So we'd be getting 12 minute takes, three, four cameras, and they're kind of broken up into scenes, but I think it helps the actors to just keep going when they're fight mostly fighting between Kendall and Roman and Shiv. And then, you know, there were a lot of political consultants because they wanted to make it feel as realistic as possible. There was so much attention to all the chirons and it was as much as possible trying to make it feel realistic. Yeah, it felt like you were there on election night and yeah. there is just such energy and 
with Rome saying, we need to call it, we need to call it, there just felt like this pressure. And you know that Shiv is trying to tank it. And I love that sequence where Shiv, she says that she talks to Jimenez. And then Kendall later goes, let me talk to him. And then you stay inside the conference room and you just cut through the windows and you just see and you don't hear what Kendall's. And I love the fact that we don't get that information, but you can kind of see everything spinning out of control as you see her and you see Kendall on the other side of the class. I thought that was right, really because, interesting. Th- thank you. No, because that is one of those instances where the audience is way ahead of the characters, right? So the audience knows that Shiv hasn't talked to Jimenez. So the audience is ahead of Kendall. So I think there's some kind of enjoyment seeing that he's figuring out that Shiv is like either siding with Matson or whatever, but that Shiv hasn't made that phone call. And at the same time, seeing how Shiv is reacting to seeing that Kendall exactly. is like, that was a fun one. And actually that was one of the few instances where there wasn't that much footage. There was only one take of Kendall outside. Like they just never shot that kind of moment, but luckily there was one take. And just in general, that episode is a rare one because Jesse basically doesn't really want to hear anything other than dialogue and music, all the backgrounds, any kind of sound design is really brought down. But this was one of the rare instances where Jesse was very much, I want a TV to be playing in every room and I just want to hear like political chatter throughout. It was fantastic. It was a great episode. Thank you very much. Very powerful. So yeah, sort of the finale. All the New York stuff was shot first, and then it was a little bit of a lag before they shot the Barbados stuff. And then when I got the Barbados stuff and everything was in there, the cut was probably a little over two hours, <laughs> which is a lot. It was all great. I was, you know, a little worried. And I think by the time we sent it to HBO, I think it was close to maybe a little over an hour and a half. And uh, they were fine with it being an hour and a half, which was great <laughs> for us, because I have no idea how we would get it any shorter. I ended up being an hour, 28 minutes. And then my first reaction when I was working with Mark was the scene with Roman at the end in the bar. It was uh, scripted as like a longer scene. And he comes in, he's talking to the bartender a little bit. And the bartender says, what's, what's happened to your face? And he, he, Roman makes a joke. And it was like a minute and 30 seconds scene. And I thought, I'm not sure we need this scene. So we took that out and Mark agreed because it seemed like we had to do something. <laughs> And then later, one of HBO's notes was the ending. They wanted something different than maybe maybe the scene of the Rowan in the bar. Jesse didn't really say much about it, but then I was thinking about it. I said, what if we just did that bar scene, but just kept it really short? You know, he just gets the drink and he's like, has that expression on his face. And I tried that and I tried it in two different places. I tried it where it is in the episode and also after between Shiv and Kendall walking in the park and... Both of them seem to work well, but Adara, who was also part of the discussion, thought it would be better before Shiv and Tom in the car. So that's where it ended up. And it was great that we had to get it back because that look on his face as he's drinking that martini has that smile and then that look of just total panic or whatever it was <laughs> on his face <laughs> was just amazing. Yeah, I mean, you didn't need the dialogue. It yeah. uh, said everything, right. just right. him drinking that and it's the brilliance that it's a martini which is what jerry would always drink exactly yes right exactly the other thing about the episode was just the whole mix back and forth of them deciding who's gonna be the ceo and and, you know when they annoyed ken they're all sort of like happy and everything there were like seven takes with maybe three cameras for that and they were all totally different and i had a really difficult time cutting it and it turned out really great 
And that was actually the final scene that they shot for the whole season. You know, they dumped the frap on Kendall's head. They did that a couple of takes. And I was asking Mark, so did they have a lot of shirts there? He said, no, it was a very expensive shirt. So they had to wash it every between takes and make it clean again. So that was pretty funny. And the other scene that was sort of tricky, although it looked... Uh, was the scene with Kendall and Roman where he, he's hugging him and Roman is pressing his head against to undo his stitches and so he's bleeding again. Yeah, that was intense. The first pass, I cut it with more of Kendall pushing him down and Jesse was saying it really should be Roman being masochistic and really wanting it to show that he's, mm. he's, not, he's not chosen for this because of his looks and his things. So it became more of a thing of Roman pressuring kind of himself doing it. Uh, I can't remember how many versions there were, but they were all were right in one way or another. And uh, HBO commented that they liked the prior version better. And, and then we went back to that scene again and uh, ended up something a little bit different, but more of what they liked. Mm-hmm. I mean, the great thing about that episode is you're really constantly not sure what's going to happen. Who's going to side with who? Who's going to be the CEO? They go from loving each other to hating each other to loving each other. Mm-hmm. And that boardroom scene is just so intense when it seems like it's a slam dunk for Kendall. And then Rome has that long pause and then Shiv leaves the room and you're just like, Oh, Holy hell. (laughs) This is crazy. (laughs) And it's just so intense that type rope that it's walking constantly. It was really beautifully cut together. I just thought it was fantastic. And just emotionally to go through all these different emotions, you just see the love of these kids towards each other. And yet also the competition that they've been instilled with from their father. You just see it in that virtual dinner that Connor shows them. And they were pitted against each other from the beginning. They had no choice. Mm -hmm. It's amazing just seeing the brokenness of these children right yeah yeah i thought there were a lot of great scenes in that so i really like that also the scene with tom and madsen in the restaurant where oh it's amazing tom goes from like (laughs) he's he's like i'm fired and then (laughs) just the twist is just incredible right and I know, I know we had a, you had a question about Greg, uh, the Google translation thing. Uh-huh. An interesting thing about that was I cut it, and then we had a sound editor who was working in Denmark who spoke Swedish, where I wanted to check you know, that it had it right. She was great, because it turns out that they were some ad-libbing some stuff saying, Oh, really? It's going to be great. He was an empty student, which was not supposed to be there, because it wasn't on the translation on the phone. So I had, to, I had to recut that scene based on her translation. Oh, that's funny. That's what happens when you don't speak Swedish. <laughs> the level of accuracy of succession, I tell you. <laughs> well, I love the show. I love your editing. And I just so enjoyed talking to you tonight. So thank you so much. Great. Thank, thank you. you for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. We really appreciate it. I'm gone. You are not good at your job. We are over. We have to guide this company. If it feels scary, it's because the potential is scary. Let the games begin.